Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Wednesday 20th December with me Ian Welsh. As is the final podcast of the year, we have a special format this week with the three most popular interviews of 2023. First up is Regine Souza, Yara's Senior Vice President for Global Innovation. We spoke about the rise and rise of regenerative agriculture, the role of companies across the value chain in enabling technology and innovation, and the importance of taking a farmer-centric approach. We're going to talk a bit about resilient food supply. What are the key factors, do you think, in developing a resilient food supply sector? The real key factors in changing how we produce food is about cost sharing. We have to make sure that we share the cost of this emission reduction. In Yara, we believe that we need to create a market mechanism for carbon reduction because we need to enable this system to function in the way it operates the best, namely at sharing costs in a way that benefits the whole system. So that means that where the cost arises, namely at the farmer's field, then they also need to be compensated directly for that carbon reduction cost that they will have, a new cost for them at least. Why is it that the costs are with the farmer then? We can just look at the statistics of it. A quarter of all the emissions on this planet at least comes from food production. And if you kind of drill down one step down, then you see that 80% of the emissions in the food system comes from the farmer's field. There's a lot to focus on packaging. There's a lot to focus on transport. And don't get me wrong, those are important as well. It's crucial. But they still do belong to the category that represents 20% of the problem. So to kind of address the real big issues, we have to get the farmers on board. To be very specific in relation to fertilizer, that means a new set of products, a new set of techniques, for instance, related to water and water usage and fertilizers, and also probably the most under-communicated area, namely the infield practices that we need to enable farmers to know exactly the right amount of fertilizer to use. That goes for only fertilizers and inputs, there are so many other inputs that require costs for the farmer. And we cannot stand outside and give more instructions to a farmer or some would even say broken food systems where the farmer is left in terms of the value they're creating. You mentioned the fact that we've got a situation where we have to be really concerned and by reducing emissions in agriculture. It's other factors too, it's other impacts on biodiversity, on water and everything else. So it's not just the carbon emissions that we need to be thinking about. But to solve any of these issues, it strikes me that you know, an all-value chain approach is really important, as you've said. How do you think we can develop this all-value chain approach? I think the key is to think holistically on it. The problem occurs at the farmer's field. But we are all faced with the consequences. And also, if you look at it from a consumer's point of view or even the financial market's point of view, you see these companies, let's say the food companies, they have pledges, they have, they promised something to us as consumers. That can be fossil-free, net zero by 2030 and all that. And that's a, that's a promise that these companies give to us as consumers, but they also give that to their owners. So by saying that, they have a huge stake in the survival of the food companies the way they are, the way they operate today. So that is one part of the problem that we all own this problem in a new way. 
thinking holistically on this. And that's what we are trying to do in Yara. How can we create market mechanisms to reduce carbon where we all chip in? Because I'm not sure if we can only share costs differently in the value chain that we actually can solve the big problems lying ahead. And that means that we need to have onboarded consumers into making sustainable choices, which is really scalable choices. That it's not just a matter of recycled packaging. Don't get me wrong, that's good. But we need to enable the consumers to know the good from the great. That's part of it. Has there been a disconnect then between growers and other value chain players? Has the model or the relationship not broken down, but perhaps moved in the way that it shouldn't? Well, I think it's absolutely is a disconnect. You can look at it from who's earning the big money. The closer to the consumer you are, the more money you make. Going back to if that's fair or not, it doesn't seem fair to us at least. But the thing is also that if we are putting even more costs on the farmer's shoulders and saying that now you need to negotiate upwards in the food value chain, then I think we will all be dead by natural causes while, <laughs> while waiting for that to happen because it's impossible for 500 million farmers plus to negotiate behalf. There's no internet address, is there, called farmer.com when you can reach them all. So I think we, companies like us, like Yara, we kind of, we're present all around the globe in 160 countries. We need to use our voices and see kind of we have a solution to part of this problem. And we also think that we can create and enable these market mechanisms resolving parts of the carbon problem. As you say, 500 million farmers worldwide, a lot of people to reach. What are the sort of solutions that you think can help fix this disconnect between growers and other parts of the value chain? What we do believe in is that we create a carbon reduction collaboration, holistic ones. That basically means that we are tackling the big problems related to fertilizers. And we are obviously fully aware of the 1.4 billion tons of carbon emitted by fertilizers every year. But for us, we also see that that is also the size of the problem, but equals also the, the size of the opportunity. For us, investing in, for instance, blue and green fertilizer, which costs a tremendous amount of money and will be a huge investment. By us collaborating throughout the food value chain and also having a collaboration with food companies, we can chip in to make sure that that cost is split throughout. And one thing is the product. Ian, we talk about fertilizer a lot, but what's under-communicated, as I said in the beginning, is this precision farming. And I'm an advocate for using less fertilizers, believe it or not. We want our products to be misused. Rather the opposite. We are on a mission to make sure that we are using the right amount of fertilizer, the right product. And we have all of this fantastic research on that. That is up to us also in collaboration with those ordering the food from these growers in the first place to make sure that we tackle the infill part, which is equally important as the fertilizer itself. You mentioned just now blue and green fertilizers. Just explain a little bit about what each of those are. It's the amount of carbon being used in the actual product. It's about how they are produced. So the green fertilizers, for instance, they are not using natural gas as a resources, as a raw material. They are using water instead. That requires a tremendous amount of energy. That's why it's so much more expensive. But the actual product, the fertilizer that, you, that the farmers and the growers apply, that's the same product. 
It's using water, presumably hydrolysis of water to produce hydrogen, which is then used in the process of producing the fertilizers. I'm interested to talk a little bit about food supply business models evolving. You mentioned just now to look at who's earning the big money. How do you think that food supply business models need to evolve? We actually need to put a price on carbon. There is no other way because I don't think we will get a balanced market if we then have a lot of subsidies in one area that will create unbalance in how we compete in another sector. And that goes between countries, industries, and so forth. That's our goal, to make sure that that carbon has a value on its own. And by going one step down in that explanation, because I'm not merely talking about carbon credits, but those familiar with SPTI and how to measure that to reduce your footprint, a maximum amount of 10% come from offsetting buying credits, for instance. And what we are talking about in our business proposition throughout the value chain is actually in setting, changing the way we farm. The carbon that we save by, for instance, using this green fertilizer that I talked about just now, and also applying the right practices, precision farming, the carbon that we reduce needs to be priced. And that cost of that reduction needs to be shared. That goes from the food companies down to obviously also the farmer. As we advocate strongly for Anyara, we believe that the farmers needs to be compensated more than they do today. Clearly, a fertilizer business has a crucial role, as we alluded to, in helping farmers to minimize their impacts. And there's an obvious need to try and maintain and increase yields with less input. That's, we've been talking about that already. How are you going about enabling this? In Yara, we are the front runners in our industry and we're very proud of that. And I think we've been so for many, many years. It started off actually with our, us introducing a catalyst, which already reduced a substantial amount of emissions from our fertilizer production. And that was 20 or so years ago. And what we did actually... After inventing that, we sold that technology. So that's fully available to other companies as well. And we did that due to the fact that we need to reduce emissions on this planet. And then again, we are investing a lot in green production or green fertilizers. And we are also investing equally in practices and research. And we have, when I say equally, we have done so over 40 years or so, 40 plus years. So we have a lot of research and competence in terms of how much to apply in what crops, what areas, how the soil interacts with the crops and so on. So that means that competence by itself can reduce a lot of emissions. We also want to be the front runner in designing partnerships, holistic partnerships to reduce emissions. We are trying to be as bold as can be. We also receive very positive both feedback and conversations, even starting to have negotiations with different players throughout the value chain, because we all see the problem. It's not always easy to, to find the right solutions, but we also at least experience a lot of openness in terms of finding new holistic solutions together. Can you give us some examples perhaps of the on-the-farm solutions that you're talking about? So what we're doing then is that we're saying that we can separate the production of fertilizer, the value of the production of fertilizers from the actual product. As I explained to you earlier that the green fertilizer, for instance, that's the exact same product. And that means that the farmers, they can use the product they have always used. But the value of that carbon, that is something we can split throughout the value chain with, for instance, food companies or retailers or other relevant players. That means that we can actually separate the financial value of the carbon and the product itself. That means there's more to trade. That's a way of trading carbon. 
You mentioned just now that producing green fertilizers require quite a lot of input energy. How does that work? Is it all hydrogen energy that you use to create the green carbon? And presumably to create the hydrogen, you require energy itself. So that depends on where we produce it. But at the moment, we are producing it in Norway while we start to this summer. It's actually, we have a fortunate position in Norway with our hydropower. So we actually have a green grid already. But obviously for us to convert our whole fertilizer production throughout the world and also the, our competitors, that's the key question, right? How do we make sure we have enough green energy? And I think for Europe, that's one of the key challenges, not just for the fertilizer industry, but for the whole industry in Europe is a huge question. There is not just one single answer, but that's obvious that if we cannot find a green electricity, then we are not going to get green fertilizers either. What's well, interesting model using the carbon-free energy and then using that as an incentive across the value chain, really very interesting. How do you work with farmers specifically to help them use less fertilizer? So for us, enabling farmers to upskill them on fertilizer use is key. We have, for instance, tools like our at farm where you get the exact amount of fertilizers that you need to apply. One of the key elements to know how much fertilizer to apply is investing in your soil. The soil management and, and having a healthy soil is directly linked to the use of fertilizers. By doing soil analysis, for instance, and also obviously we have a huge overview of the different types of soils out there. And by knowing soil conditions, by knowing the weather conditions, obviously the crops and then using the four R principles, we can actually guide our farmers either through agronomists on the ground or via digital tools as the app that I just mentioned. I think this goes back to the core and the heart of Yara because we don't want our farmers to overuse fertilizer. That is not the business model that we rely on. So for us, very, very often, it's about actually advising farmers to use less fertilizers and use it in the right way and also at the right time. So I think these, obviously, many, many farmers are fantastic experts, but still the research we do and that we have done in our research center that also develops. So the more we know, the more we have of, for instance, this soil data analysis, the more accurate we can be in how we can onboard farmers into more sustainable farming and precision farming. Regenerative agriculture for us actually can be summed up in the nitrogen use efficiency. It in essence means that we are feeding the plant what the plant has eaten so that they can continue growing. Probably you will understand I'm an economist and not an agronomist, but it's actually as simple and as complicated as that. Provide back to the plant what it has eaten for breakfast, lunch or dinner. <laughs> you talked about earlier the need for collaboration. How can the value chain collaborate around this sort of model? And what are the incentives that are required across the value chain? One is the one we already discussed, namely having a price for carbon. That carbon price, the way I predict it now, is not likely to be one price for carbon insetting because it relates to the different costs. We need to onboard the financial market. That increasingly happens as well, that those companies with sizable efforts within the sustainability area that they can document, they will get better interest rates, for example. Then you have the consumers and companies like ours that can actually document the carbon reduction. I think we also need to both understand and collaborate with food companies or retailers selling food to be able to explain to these consumers incentives in, in that case is that you will actually sell more products. 
that's where I think we all need to be very holistic in our understanding of thinking. And a company like Yara, we were invented based on the famine in Europe in 1905. So we have been very, very low in the value chain when it comes to consumer-facing identity. We haven't really been close to the consumer, but we also need to rethink the way we act and interact throughout the food value chain. And how can we document, let's say, with track and trace of fertilizer that can enable food companies and retailers to communicate because they need our proof to do so. So I think that's an example of how companies like ours and other companies as well need to learn and understand how the entire value chain works. I also do believe it would be beneficial for us if the complexity in the value chain would go down. It's surprisingly complex and there are a lot of players that we should dare to question a bit in the future, I think, to make sure we are the right players, but still that we are all impactful in the way we operate. Well, it's certainly a fascinating model and it's a really interesting idea to be using the pricing of carbon in such a way across the value chain. Interesting to hear how it develops, but for now, Ricky from Yara, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Earlier this year, I spoke with Charlotte Band, Global Food and Beverage Sector Lead at Qantas, about how businesses are shifting from intention to action when it comes to real long-term sustainability. We're going to talk a bit about how you're seeing companies transitioning from intention to action on climate issues, particularly related to the food and beverage sector. It does feel like companies are now getting to the point of embracing the transformations necessary for the transition to real long-term sustainability. To what extent do you agree with that? Um, What examples can you share if you do? We are definitely seeing a shift. When I started working in the field, I remember we talked a lot about measurement and then it shifted. And during our last podcast, we were talking about the shift from measurement to commitments. And now we're seeing that phase also really shifting on, okay, the commitments have been made, especially in the food and beverage sector, the net zero commitments, the science-based targets, all of that is in place. And we're starting seeing really the companies implementing action whether it's through pilots around regenerative agriculture, whether it's transitioning their packaging, their renewable energy, and so on. I do think, however, and that's where maybe I disagree partially with the statement, is that the level of transition that's going to be really required to reach net zero, that's one thing that we're not seeing yet. Companies are still struggling by figuring out what does their company look like in a net zero world or more broadly in a planetary aligned economy. And that level of transition, we're still not fully seeing. We're seeing action, but more in the incremental space and not at the pace required or at the level required yet. What are the conversations, I imagine difficult conversations, that companies need to have internally push this process forward? We've been seeing more and more with some of our clients that they are starting to grasp that, okay, it needs to go beyond, especially as the CSOs do. But the reality is, as long as you don't have those discussions really with the C-suite level and the board being, okay, what does our business model look like in a planetary aligned economy? Like that's a really difficult discussion to have because it might mean completely stopping certain parts of your activities or shifting entire pieces of your portfolio. This is extremely deep as a transition. These difficult discussions really need to happen. The other difficult one is what does creating value mean for the company? And how do you grow that value? This nice notion of creating shared value that was published years ago. And I think fundamentally it goes back to that. What is the value that a company is creating? 
And the good news is that we are starting to see more and more leaders starting to consider this and look into these discussions. But as long as you don't have those fundamental answers of my business model and what growth looks like into a planetary economy, I think everything else will struggle really getting in motion. What then are the levers that CSOs can bring to the board to push this forward? What are the levers that can really make the difference here? I see three types of levers, especially for a CSO. The first one for me is culture. Like you need a sustainability culture as a prerequisite for sustainability transformation. And the great news is that in any company we work with, employees are eager to hear about sustainability. That's really a lever that we can use. So bringing your employee on board, bringing that motivation and helping them understand that each of them at their levels can do something about becoming more sustainable. They all have power. And so I think empowering the large base of employees is a critical one. The second thing is that CSOs have received more and more questions from investors, which I think is great because it creates a relationship between the CSO and the investor. That is a critical one. And we see the positive that a question from an investor can drive. As soon as there is an investor asking questions about water, the company starts shifting on water. How can the CSO then potentially also influence a bit more those investors into the topics that are really material for the planet and for the company and help them focus on what matters? And then it's also about talking internally and being that advocate. Like, how do you get the financing that is going to be required? How do you operationalize and make your sustainability strategy something that the functions can own and they will have the financing to do that? As long as your sustainability strategy remains within your sustainability department, it's never going to be successful. How can you develop an actually a product strategy that is sustainable and not a sustainability strategy about products? And that's really where the CSO can be this change agent through the functions to get this transition going. Yes, yeah, so it's the kind of slightly ironic point that a successful CSO is essentially making their job defunct because it needs to be part of everything rather than a specific function. I don't think we're at that stage yet. There's an awful lot the companies need to do to get to that stage. Everyone talks about collaboration. You mentioned it just now, internally and externally. Do you think that there's a reluctance in terms of transparency as a barrier to collaboration? Are you still seeing that reluctance to be fully transparent internally and externally? Yeah, I'd say it's still present and and for good points, you know, like at the end of the day, in the beginning, sustainability was very high level and not really touching the core businesses. And so it was easy to communicate. It was easy to share. But now there's compliance elements coming into play. There's deep competitive elements that we're talking about. The specific sourcing region of a company can be a highly competitive element because it can determine the quality or the type of products or the taste of the product they're providing. It has all these elements that come into play. So I do think that For some good reason, sometimes there is a challenge for companies to fully be open and to fully collaborate. And to to the point that, honestly, there are laws about preventing some levels of collaborations to avoid difficult economic challenges of companies taking a monopoly and so on. There's all of that that comes to play. But I do think we've seen companies collaborate very well with NGOs, governments. We also see them collaborate with their suppliers and we see them even collaborate with peers. We will see Danone and Nestle sometimes coming together on a specific topic to really help changing things. So yes, it is a challenge. I don't see that as really stopping them right now. They'll go through third parties to make sure that data is secure and that you know the data is not shared per se. We have launched you know, at Qantas consortiums with many companies providing us very confidential data and we made it work. Yes, it is a concern, but I would say I don't think that is fully preventing collaboration at this stage. 
Is that sort of peer-to-peer -peer collaboration you mentioned just now, is that the sort of evidence that you're seeing that senior management at these big companies and brands are embracing the need for change then? The fact they are finding these clever ways to work together? I'd say definitely that's a sign and more broadly and we see you know CEOs taking the stage much more about sustainability and not just about saying it's important but they start owning their sustainability strategies they know what's going on at their sustainability department level the key topics they're working on and so you can see them embracing it by really talking about it and it's not just the CEOs anymore it's the chief procurement officer it's the CFO who are all starting to really know much more about this I think another thing that we definitely see is also the fact that it's tied to the performance. More and more companies, you look at a Nestle, a Mars and so on, they have the sustainability performance tied to the performance bonuses of their senior leadership. Obviously, you see that naturally they will become much more. And then the last thing that I see beyond collaboration is the financial commitment of some companies. And I just named a couple right now. So Mars for instance, announced, I don't know if you saw this, just a few weeks ago, that it was invested a billion dollars over the next three years to make sure that they accelerate the pace because they are not yet reaching and where they want to be in terms of sustainability. And they see sustainability as equal to sustainability performance as equal to financial performance. So if you look at all this, this is really such a big, big sign that it's not just the sustainability department fight anymore. It is really being embraced by senior leadership. Again, to the level that is needed, it's still sometimes more rare, but we are seeing very positive signs there. Obviously, to translate that into the corporate performance, KPIs are very important. For you then, what are the key performance indicators that need to be in place so that the incentives across a business are all pushing in the right direction, you know, from top to bottom? For me, what you finished your question with is really the most important piece. It has to be top to bottom. Yes, we're seeing some leadership having KPIs associated with sustainability, like are we on track with reaching our science-based targets, and yes or no things. That's very nice. But as long as your buyer down the road doesn't have a sustainability KPI in the way he approaches the specific commodity, then it's never going to happen. So those KPIs have to be everywhere in order to be successful. And then at the end of the day, I think one of the big, the most important pieces about these KPIs is that they can be varied. I don't think we should have one or two specific KPIs throughout the entire organization. Rather, where I see the role of a CSO to work with those functions is to figure out for a specific department, what are the key KPIs that will be required to reach the sustainability strategy and translate that into operational terms. So to give you an example, if you're thinking about the packaging department, you know, something very critical for many brand owners or CPGs, a designer is not going to be looking at, okay, tons of CO2s, water scarcity, plastic leakage, all of that are not KPIs that are familiar with, nor that we want to spend time training everybody on these KPIs. Instead, what needs to happen is, okay, figuring out what does the packaging of the future, what is a planetary aligned packaging portfolio look like? And to get there, what are some of the criteria, packaging-related criteria that need to be put in place? So recyclability, recycled content, weight of materials, types of materials that maybe you want to get out. And then you start having those KPIs next to the cost of the quality and all of this. Once you have something that is simple like this, you'll be able to really talk to the designer in a language that speaks to them, and they'll be able to embrace it that more effectively. There's a lot of talk about just transition involving businesses in their supply chains and also in the context of the business itself. What does the right transition look like inside a business and then perhaps also thinking in terms of a business and its supply chain? 
there's a nice saying that says, I would love to live in theory because in theory, everything goes right, you know? So in theory, you have this notion of, okay, a transition takes two big phases. The first one is figuring out what the transition even looks like. Where are you at? What are the challenges? Where do you want to go next? And what does it look like to go there? And that's very much, I would say, a paper-based exercise. It's an in-house exercise that companies are doing. And then there's the actual change that needs to happen. And that's where you need to shift everything, the way you do things, the processes, the tools, all of that needs to happen. And that's a complete behavioral change. That's where you will start bringing your supply chain, figuring out what investments are needed, where you might have some companies in your supply chains already moving and how you can support them versus others that might not be moving and where you need to invest maybe more. All of this is taking place. You mentioned the word just a transition, and that's for me something that is really critical is especially when we're thinking about the food system. Our food system relies on agriculture and relies on farmers that unfortunately very often are under poverty levels and all of this. There is no successful food system transition if there isn't a redesign of the way the economics of that food system functions. And if we don't solve that challenge for and with the farmers, we'll never be able to sustain something in the long term. That piece of what the transition looks like, well, it looks like discussing with the farmers and actually solving that equation. Then Tyndale, it's all a big, nice commitment, but it's nothing that's going to be very concrete. It does feel that there's been a big shift to properly involving farmers and growing communities in these conversations, because as you say, there's an acceptance that they need to be brought along with the process. Do you have any examples of farmer engagement that's done well? I mean, what does that look like from a big business perspective? There are many programs and programs, funnily enough, that were launched even before this big topic about net zero. When you look at the Nespresso AAA program, or if you look about the Cocoa Life Plan from Mondelez, or more recently, the Reginag program from McCain, there are a lot of these programs that are being developed. And all of these are really going to the ground and talking and working with these farmers on understanding what is it that they actually need? How can you help them? How can you support them? Sometimes it's financial, but not always. Sometimes it can be technical. It can be expertise. It can be unlocking some best practices. It can be creating a way for them to share knowledge. There are new tools around the farm. There's been a realization, first of all, that the farmer is needed to achieve this, that it can't be done without them. And the second realization is that they know what they're doing. They've been farming their lands for so long. The big company who comes in and just say, by the way, let's switch all of this because we know best, that's never going to work. It has to be a dialogue. It has to be something where we embrace the fact that they have their own generational knowledge of their lands and to listen to them as to what they need and then adapt the support to what they need. And we see many companies shifting into that frame more on the piloting stage right now because they are testing it out. It's a great sign to see that companies are putting more of the farmer at the table. At the Future of Food conference that we attended, it was just nice to see some farmers present. And I do hope that in the coming years, we'll see more and more because I think we should have a much more balanced representations of growers and farmers to these events as well. Certainly, from our perspective at Innovation Forum, we are very, very keen to have farmers involved in the conversation, certainly doing our very best to include them in the conversations that we're able to bring together. Inevitably, when there's a process of change, there are going to be unintended consequences that emerge. What are the sort of things that companies should be looking out for? Well, one of the ones that I've started to notice more and more as we set those 2030 targets, sometimes without figuring out that long-term business model view, is that they might be working on improving processes that they actually should get rid of. The reality of taking that step back and figuring out what does our business model look like in a planetary aligned world, 
will help you avoid spending the next five or 10 years working on some processes that maybe by then you'll realize you should simply phase out of because that's not the future of your industry. I think that's one of the biggest one that I see right now when we're setting those shorter science-based targets and shorter term actions. Another key one is, I mean, that's something that we've seen for years, but I think with the increase of compliance right now around the reporting trap, so many companies are spending years long resources really focusing on all the reporting that needs to happen. And it still decreases significantly the amount of financing and team resources that actually goes into the action phase. Uh, finding a way to streamline those reporting efforts, to communicate what you need to communicate, but not try to do everything about every reporting is going to be an important one. A couple of others that we keep seeing or start seeing is by having more and more companies act, and there it is true, companies are acting. We're seeing more and more of the quick wins being developed. All of that is moving forward. But unfortunately, these are still not enough to reach the transition. Well, what happens is that when they communicate on these quick wins that they're working on, there tends to be a sense of greenwashing that is coming up. Making sure that what you communicate is either saying, we know it's not enough, here is the first things we've done, and we know it's not enough, we'll do more, or really communicate on the big transformational pieces. But by only communicate on the smaller ones, without that honesty that it's not big enough, and we've seen some recent examples of that in the press, I think we see those very regularly, that's a big risk of that beginning of the transition. The final one, which is very critical as we shift into action, is the complexity. How do you make sure you don't go into a stage where things are so complex that you get paralyzed? And it's a topic we've heard a lot from companies, even at some conferences. When we bring the topic of nature, companies are like, wait, I'm already trying to figure out climate. I can't look into nature now. When actually nature can help them reach climate. And so how do you explain those nuances? How do you show that these topics are not adding complexity, but actually enablers to success? And then making that transition with some key focus areas to try and make the change. And don't get me wrong, it's going to be complex, no matter what. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Our concerns about accusations of greenwashing causing delays in the process, is there an element or a risk the perfect being the enemy of the good here? Because companies are concerned about going down a route that might lead to accusations of greenwashing. And then they're not actually getting on with what they need to get on with, because at the moment, we don't have any time to wait. I had a discussion recently with a journalist. We discussed this. We still need to allow companies to communicate because if we also say that everything they say is greenwashing, we're just going to paralyze companies as well. And, and they do need that communication element to you know, move forward. And to your point, we need everything to happen. Any action at this point is worth taking and then we need more. That's where I think companies have to be simply honest that it might not be enough. When letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. You need pragmatism, to your point. Let's go. Let's do some things. It might not be perfect, but let's do something. And then you need to, that honest transparency of this is everything we're doing and we know it's not enough and we're working on the rest. But here is already everything that we're doing and we also need to be proud of everything that we've put in motion. And I think if you just add that final piece of the sentence of we know it's not enough, we're working on it, but so far, we've already implemented all of this. I think the message would be much more well-received and we would avoid a lot of the greenwashing that's happening. How do you think the conversations will evolve over the next few years? What are the things you think are going to be coming up to ensure that the transition that we've been talking about, the kind of real move to action continues? There's three shifts that I'm noticing. I think for the transition to happen, there's that big discussions around business model. But, but some of the topics that I'm going to see, that I see will become more and more present it's first climate is going to move to nature and planetary. 
we're not going to be talking about climate only, especially in the food system. There is no transition without nature. And I would go even beyond. There is no transition without the economics for the farmers. What does that planetary or broader donut economy looks like for a food system to be sustainable? And that entire discussion, I think, will keep happening more and more. And, and once we will, we will have a transition that has more chances of succeeding once we are in this setup. The second piece, especially in food, is going to be adaptation. At this stage, we talk a lot about mitigation of those emissions or those environmental impacts. But the food system is extremely vulnerable to weather patterns changes. With the shocks that come with climate change, with biodiversity loss and water scarcity, we're going to see adaptation be at the forefront and really be looked at as a risk management standpoint. So I think we're going to see a much bigger equilibrium, even in our regions. And the third thing is the comeback of compliance. For a lot of time, especially in the food space, food companies were very ahead of you know, sustainability compliance and they had set science-based targets very early on and so on. The reality is now compliance is catching back, especially in Europe, with the deforestation ban, the packaging, waste regulation, the eco-labeling. And so companies are starting to look back to compliance and saying, oh, what do I have to do? That will significantly accelerate the discussions. Some very advanced regions, also like California, are starting to push companies. And when they shift for a region, they'll start shifting for everything because it's much more effective this way. All of these elements will make the transition increase the pace and also make it more holistic so that it becomes actually more sustainable. The shifts have been really interesting in the past few years. Let's hope the speed of activity continues. But for now, Charlotte Band from Qantas, thank you very much indeed. In the lead up to the Innovation Forum Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference in the autumn, I spoke with IDH's Tessa Mulstein and Chi Tran on the impact of the EU's deforestation regulations on the coffee sector. The EUDR was by far the talking point of the subsequent conference. We're going to talk a bit about the coffee sector today. Tessa, perhaps you can give us a bit of a snapshot as to where the coffee sector is, what does it look like right now, and who's supplying and from where? The most important thing to say is there's a lot of countries that are supplying coffee and not only a lot of countries, but there's a lot of farmers supplying coffee. Typically, coffee farmers are smallholders, so over 80% of supply comes from smallholders. And we're talking about over 12 and a half million smallholders globally. Coffee is being produced in the Americas, in Africa and in Asia, so really around the world in what we call the coffee belt. It's a tropical commodity, but it typically grows on a bit of mountainous area. So it's sensitive to temperatures and rainfall patterns, for example. But it does mean we have a large diversity in origins and a large diversity in context, even though most of it is produced through smallholders. We've been talking quite a lot at Innovation Forum about the implications of the new EU deforestation regulations that are incoming. Chi, perhaps you can give us a snapshot as to what the EUDR is setting out to achieve within the context of the coffee sector. As we all know, EUDR has come as the result of the fighting against the deforestation globally. Since 1990 until 2020, 420 million hectares of forest worldwide have been lost. And 90% of that is because of the expansion of agricultural land. And in this process, EU is also the major consumer of the commodities that are associated with deforestation and forest degradation. So that is why EUDR has come in this context in order to set up the mandatory due diligence rules for all of the operators who import the products into EU markets 
that they have to ensure that the products coming into the markets is both deforestation free and legal to get into the EU market. So this also means that EUDR will require the very strict traceability linking of the commodity to the plot of land where it was produced. And the legality here also means that the products need to be legal according to the laws of the country of production. So in that context, coffee is one of the seven commodities that is put under this EUDR in the first place as one of the commodities that required mandatory due diligence report by the operators who import the products into EU. Tessa, do you have any further reflections on how the regulations will be impacting the coffee sector? I think there will be quite a bit of impact, to be fair, and it refers back a bit to what I was mentioning earlier on, is the sheer number of smallholders that we're talking about in the coffee sector. That makes it complex to get everybody mapped. Currently, the coffee sector is not always very clear, so supply is typically not mapped out that everybody knows their coffee back to the farmer, but that's a requirement under this new regulation. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get that mapping right. And then there are all these different origins that need to do it. So we're not talking about, say, three main origins in which you need to get your mapping right, but we're really talking about a large amount of origins to do so. And each of these contexts are different. In each of those countries, the sector looks slightly different. There is a real impact that can come out of this, and it could be both positive and negative. And I would like to hope that we can focus on the positive and really work towards what she was mentioning, eh, deforestation-free coffee supply chains. But there is definite risks with it as well. So I think it all comes down to how we implement it. It will be very challenging, but it has a lot of potential for good as well. As you say, Tessa, there are going to be many potential benefits from the regulation. What are the potential unintended consequences, though? I think there's a few. The major one is that we start having a separation between deforestation-free and non-deforestation-free supply chains, which means that you might end up with the more vulnerable farmers being left out of the European market rather than actually combating deforestation in your coffee supply chains, right? So there's a potential inclusion risk where the smallholders that are currently most vulnerable will be worse because they will be blocked from their supply chains. So that's a definite risk. I think the second risk I see is actually along the same lines, but then more for origins. So there might be a move, at least in the beginning, towards the origins that have clearer supply chains, more traceable supply chains, typically some larger farms, which means you might get to even more consolidation of origins, which comes at a risk of losing diversity of supply, losing diversity of flavors, and also comes at a risk, which is something we've seen in the past, of climate change and weather events. So if that hits one origin, then that really impacts your supplies. I'd say the biggest risk is really on exclusion of smallholder farmers, and particularly the most vulnerable ones, in areas where deforestation is taking place, so then you don't actually combat deforestation. And the second one is more consolidation to two or three big origins, and with that losing origin diversity, which is quite crucial for the resilience of the sector overall. Chia, I know you're actually in Vietnam right now. Are there any regional consequences or unintended consequences from the EUDR, focusing in Southeast Asia? So I, I fully agreed with the consequences that are posed by TESA because that is at the global level, 
But in Asia, we also see the same trend like that. There are a number of more consequences that we can see specifically to Asia. Now, for example, deforestation might come to the non-EU markets. So therefore, there will be like the shift from the deforestation products into the non-EU market, while the deforest deforestation-free product will go to the EU markets. So therefore, finally, the deforestation issue is still not totally tackled by this regulation. So that might be one consequences. And where the outer final outcome we want is deforestation-free, but it cannot be happening globally. That's the first thing. The second thing is that because of the very uh, complexity of the supply chain uh, with a very high number of the smallholders, so there might be very high cost of compliance. And this putting more burden into the smallholders, like, for example, the requirement of full traceability under the plot level. And this will be very clear in both India and Vietnam. And I think that the last consequences that we think as the key is that for operators or the companies will put so much emphasis on complying with UDR, while they will forget other sustainability priorities, livelihood of the farmer, uh, water management, food uh, safety, high emission of the production. We are thinking of whether this might be like the very clear risk that will divert the interest and the investment for of the companies from other very also very important sustainability priorities globally. Let's unpack some of these contributions, positive and negative. Tessa, what could prevent a flight to lower risk growing regions, for example? I guess a few things. The first thing we need to acknowledge is that there's a time to everything. We're talking about a very short period for implementation, 18 months only, and almost six of those have gone already. So what you'll see is that most of the companies now are just looking to where can I get my volumes to be compliant quickly. However, we should never forget the intention of this legislation and the long term of doing this. I think that's the first thing. Keep in mind the long term and going back to Chi's earlier point, then if you want to manage the costs, if you want to do this properly, go in together. So don't try to solve this company by company level but really come together as a sector, but not just as a sector, but also between public and private sector to come up with systems that actually address the issue. And that's something that we should really vouch for to work together, to work collaboratively, to build on forest mapping systems, to build on farmer traceability systems, but to design them in such a way that you do not expose the farmers to all those additional costs but you actually share them across the value chain. Those are a couple of very important points, but the, the working together, I think, is really important. And the second one being think around where you invest and how you invest. Again, we're talking about over 50 origins in coffee, so it's a lot. Which of those countries do you need to prioritize based on number of smallholders, based on how much they supply to the EU right now, based on to what extent there are existing systems or not? Thinking around where you invest and how you invest as a sector is a second one that's important. And implementation is short, so there tends to be a focus to invest in the origins where you can get those volumes the quickest. But those might not be the origins where you have most of the work to be done to become compliant. I think there needs to be a discussion around how to work together on this, what can be done collaboratively, 
and where do you need to prioritize, not just in terms of volumes, but in terms of your longer term supply. And I know the International Coffee Organization, for example, tends to talk about the squeezed middle. So those are the countries, the ones that have lots of smallholders, maybe not as structured systems yet, and a large supply to the European market. That's where investments need to come together. Getting that streamlined is quite crucially important to make sure that we don't end up with too compliant origins and the rest is left behind. Chi, do you have any further comments on that? And I wondered in particular if you have any thoughts on how smallholder farmers can best be brought into the scope of the EUDR. I fully agree with what Tejas just, just mentioned, having the national system in order to create the equal opportunities for all of the farmers, including the smallholders farmers in the high-risk areas, that they might be recognized and, tra- and be traceable so that they can their products can go into the EU market. So that is really the best way in order to support for EUDR scope. And we see that this is the role of the government that needs to support the private sector to do that at the national level. I can give you one example that since the end of 2022, the Vietnamese governments have already come up with draft national action plan together with industry of the coffee industry in Vietnam under the facilitation of IDH in order to agree on the action plan framework of how Vietnam can comply with EUDR and solve the problem of smallholder exclusion, if any. In that framework, we put the smallholders, farmers, especially in the high-risk areas, are the key that we really need to tackle. And we really need to make sure that all the system will have to cover them and give the specific support to them. In order to do that, at the at, uh, sourcing regions, uh, we applied the landscape approach in order to make sure that all the sustainability programs support from both public and the private sector will cover not only the farmers who are in the favorable conditions, who are in the better off area, but also who are the indigenous people, who are the poor people and who live even in the forest. So with that application of the landscape approach integrated with the supply chain approach, we can make sure that the smallholders farmers will not be excluded from the EU supply chains, but still can get the equal opportunities with all the other farmers who produce the products and sell it to the EU markets. It strikes me that whilst the regulation is going to come into force, perhaps sensitive implementation of any sanctions initially might be a way to help smooth the process. Do you have any comments on that, Tessa? There is an important bit around sensitive implementation, and we focus quite a lot on what needs to happen in origin countries, but obviously there's a lot that needs to happen in importing countries, right? And right now, what we see is that there's not necessarily alignment between those. So that's the first thing I would vouch for, alignment between what you need to do as a company so you don't have anything different in Germany as you would from Belgium, which are the two biggest ports for coffee in Europe. Or if you do coffee and cocoa, you get Amsterdam on top of it. And yet again, you have to do something different. That alignment is very important and providing that clarity as soon as possible is very important as well. I know that's a struggle on all sides, but it's important for us to also make sure and focus on how are those aligned with the work that's happening in origin countries. So everything we just spoke about is incredibly important. But if it doesn't necessarily meet what the importing countries are requiring, 
then we still have an issue. So that alignment is definitely something that comes on top. Making that the same between the different importing countries is going to be crucial. Second one is how do you then support that transition? A big part of that is where do you invest? How do you invest? And how do you build equal partnerships to do that? I think there is a role for the EU in doing that next to a country by country basis. But I definitely think that that's incredibly important when it comes to sensible implementation. Again, there is a timing bit. Implementation is short. What's going to happen at the end of 24? Who's going to do what? How strict are you going to be? And how is that again aligned between the different countries are quite crucial questions that remain unanswered at this point in time. Chi, do you have any examples from the Vietnam or Southeast Asia context as to what you know, a sensitive implementation of regulation can look like? It is the matter of fact that every companies are now trying to build their own systems in order to meet the requirements of the UDR in the next 18 months when the legislation has come into force. Uh, but this also means a lot of waste will happen and, and there might be also like the overlap or the duplication of the efforts from the different companies but because they are all sourcing from the different uh, from the same region for example therefore the example that we can really show here is how to bring them all together and agree with the origin governments in order to avoid such kind of overlaps and duplication of efforts and we all see that the deadline is by the end of next year already by the legislation however we will see whether we can have any transitional period to the smallholders especially to make them really ready to comply uh, with the UDR. In that process, the public and the private sector in the origin countries need to really sit down together, brainstorm and agree on then what is the definition and the requirements and the implementation methods of the EUDR solutions, especially to the smallholders, for example, what is the requirements on legality and what is the requirement on traceability that still support like these compliance but give the transitional period more to the smallholders so that they can be readier and have the equal opportunities to the EU markets. So that is what we have done quite intensively over the last year, over the last months, in order to really have that alignment to avoid that duplication, but also to agree on the solutions together and the definition also, and also the requirement of the, and the design of the solutions in order to present to the EU markets and the importing countries that this is what does it mean by land legality in Vietnam coffee sector, this what does it mean by traceability system until the plot level in the Vietnam context. So that is really the meaningful work that we should apply not only in Vietnam, but we should apply that and scale that to all the other countries. And one example is that we are now also working with the coffee industry to do the same thing in India uh, to engage the, with the Coffee Board of India in order to really set up the same foundation for the India coffee sector. Is establishing that foundation, that sensitive transition for smallholders, are those the next steps you want to see in the coming months as the EUDR comes into effect? We are still waiting for the guidance from uh, European Commission on agricultural use. So, for example, what does it mean by like um, agroforestry system um, 
whether that could be like a part of this rule and then what is the regulation toward that? What does it mean by legalities and others as well? But what we really want to come from the origin countries in this process is that we can really share with the European Commission and the importing countries on the result of the EUDR pilots globally, specifically on coffee sector, for example. We are now supporting for the pilots in Vietnam, India, Colombia, uh, Uganda, and uh, Kenya, for example. We will present to European Commission on the cost and benefits comparison of the different solutions that we pilot. So the solution on traceability, the solution on smallholder inclusion, the solution on database development. We also present to them that what is the protocol of detecting forest loss and degradation and how to solve those cases of deforestation and to support the smallholder to avoid exclusion. And last but not least, out of these solutions, we will also present to them what are the key outcomes that achieved via those solutions, different solutions. Because if we have the solution with less cost, but still produce the same outcomes, then why don't we choose that solution? Why do we have to choose a very complicated solution which can create like a lot of compliance costs for the sector while the outcome is still the same with a simple solution. So those are the key results of the pilots that we really want to share with the EC in order to really see that now, then when it comes to the really the implementation of this EUDR, those need to be put into consideration of either accepted, those solutions accepted by EC or is there any change of the legislations in the next three or five years? Tessa, any other steps that we should be looking out for over the next few months? Not necessarily steps from IDH, because I think she outlined them very well. Maybe a hope and a wish towards the sector. For the coffee sector has been a bit behind on the EUDR, to be frank. For a long time, there was the hope that coffee would not be part of the deforestation commodities as defined by the EU. This is the case, though. The good thing about legislation is that it creates a level playing field, right? So if we're serious about not wanting deforestation in our coffee supply chains, and the same goes for the next legislation that's coming around due diligence, if we're serious about those topics, then the legislation provides an opportunity for us to have a level playing field and start working from there. And what I would really hope for the next months to happen is that as a sector, we can start looking at the legislation like this. So we move away from the complexities, even though recognizing they're there, right? I'm not saying it's not complex, but that we can move into that mindset of this might be an opportunity for us as a sector to create a level playing field towards issues that we deem to be very important. That's a next step that I do not think IDH is in a position to make happen, but definitely something that I would hope to witness in the next few months. And let us not forget, there's more legislation coming, not just from the EU, but also from other countries. Moving supply only will take you so far. Given that there's a lot happening, let's hope that the long-term aims of the legislation, which is undoubtedly well-meaning, do come to fruition and get through the bumps in the road that are inevitably going to happen over the next few months. For now, for Chitran and Tessa Wilson from IDH, thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 
Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Do look out for some reflections on what we've learned this year in this week's newsletter. That's it for 2023. Thanks for your company, and I hope you found the podcast useful this year. Certainly, my colleagues and I have enjoyed bringing it to you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks in early January. Merry Christmas if you celebrate it, and best wishes for 2024. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Thank you.